Good morning, City Light Church family. Great to see you guys. So good to be in the room to worship Jesus. It's Sunday, the best day of the week. Amen? Amen. All right. Well, if I haven't met you, my name is Gavin, one of the pastors for our church family. I love to preach the Bible, and we love to read the Bible, and we're going to grab our Bibles now. Head to Luke chapter 9 uh, that Christine just read for us, starting in verse 51. I want to let you know at the outset, at City Light, we also love Jesus. We love Jesus because we believe Jesus really loves us. Did you know Jesus really loves you personally? That's what we learn in all the Bible, and in Luke's, Gospels, in, in Luke's Gospel in particular, uh, that's where we've been studying for the better part of the last half of a year. We'll continue on for the better part of another year. And uh, it's all about the life, ministry, and mission of Jesus, what it looks like and means for us to know him and to walk with him every day. And today's passage that we're looking at marks yet another major transition in Luke's gospel. For the first nine chapters, Jesus' ministry has been happening in and around the region of Galilee. He's been doing ministry in small towns and rural villages uh, with dozens, maybe hundreds of people. I think we got a map of this uh, on a slide uh, up in this northern region of Galilee. So, Think pheasants, uh, think peasants, maybe pheasants, farmers, <laughs> blue-collar folks. It's fall, guys. I got hunting on the brain. This region is north of uh, the capital city of Jerusalem that is about 75 miles to the south. And today, he's going to make this transition where he's been for nine chapters in the red area. He's going to head down to Judea. And uh, we see that transition happen in verse 51, where it says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Real quick, that phrase, for him to be taken up, do you know what that refers to? That refers to his ascension, that he's going to be, uh, uh, ra- uh, uh, he's going to die and he's going to rise again, his resurrect- resurrection. It's the culmination of his work that he's about to do. He knows that to complete his mission on earth, he needs to go to Jerusalem where he's going to be accused, he's going to be arrested, beaten, crucified, buried. He's going to rise again on the third day and ascend into heaven. That's because what? His mission wasn't just to come and teach us some things as our teacher and our leader. It wasn't to come and model some things about how we ought to live as our example. More than that, he came to sacrifice himself as our very savior. And so in Luke's, if, if Luke's gospel were a movie, here's what would happen in today's text. At verse 51, this is that defining moment where in the, in the movie, all of a sudden the hero knows what he has to do to defeat the enemy. He has to go to battle. He has to go and save the day. And in today's text, verse 51, he would, we would see him make that firm determination that that's where he's going and that's what he's going to do. And we would hear the soundtrack intensify. The music would change, and, uh, and Jesus sets his gaze with steely re- resolve to the battle ahead. And now, for the next 10 chapters, we've gone through nine, for the next 10 ahead, we're actually going to be tracking with Jesus on this road trip to Jerusalem. It's a several months long journey uh, that, that Luke takes us on, tracking Jesus uh, on this trip. Uh, Luke uses about one-third of his entire gospel to track this 75-mile road trip from Galilee down to Jerusalem. In fact, it won't be complete until we get to chapter 19, which is the triumphal entry. And so we're going to be studying this road trip for a long time. It's it's the journey to the cross. But more than that, it's Jesus' journey to resurrection and to victory and to eternal life for you and for me 
for all who call on the name of Jesus. And so I've titled this morning's sermon, Requirements for the Road. Requirements for the Road. Because Jesus begins his journey to Jerusalem, and as he goes on this journey, he invites us along with him to follow with him. He invites his disciples, and by proximity, you and me on the road uh, to follow Jesus. We call it the road of discipleship. Discipleship. Now, anytime I preach a sermon of this nature, discipleship, what does it look like to follow Jesus in the everyday flow of life, I always need to make an important theological distinction at the outset. And that's this. There is a difference between our positional relationship with Jesus and our experiential relationship with Jesus. What do I mean? Our positional relationship with Jesus is defined in a moment in time. The theological term for our position with God is our justification. Justification is a one and done in a moment in time event where our sins, past, present, and future are all forgiven, where we're adopted into the family of God. When does this happen? This happens when we trust Jesus as our savior. We give him our sins. We receive his righteousness. We say, Jesus, I trust you. Would you come into my life and be my savior? In that moment, our status is changed forever. We are positionally united with Jesus and nothing can take us away. Our future is secure because it's based on Jesus' merits, his doing, his earning, not our obedience in the ongoing uh, days, weeks, months, and years ahead. So that's our positional relationship with Jesus. It's a static event. Then there's our experiential relationship with Jesus. This is not static. The theological term for this is sanctification. Or in the context of today's passage, it's our discipleship. Uh, this is where we... we have an ongoing process of knowing Jesus, learning more about Jesus, obeying Jesus in more and more ways, relating to Jesus in the everyday flow of our lives. And this, as I said, is not a one and done event. We spend our whole Christian life learning how to, to partner with God for our growth and our change to become more and more like Jesus. I always like to use the illustration of marriage. It may be a little bit worn out, but I can't use find a better one for this very topic to describe our justification and our sanctification or our positional and our experiential relationship to Jesus. So for example, I was married to my lovely wife on May 13th, 2006. On that date and time, we made a covenant and I got married to Sarah. And on that day, my identity fundamentally changed. I went from a single man to a married man. And my marital status changed. I was positionally married to Jesus. One and done event, May 13th, 2006. My positional relationship with Sarah has not changed since that day. I check the same box on my taxes every year. Married, filing, uh, uh, filing jointly. Positionally, that is a static event that has remained unchanged, but my experiential relationship with Sarah has changed a lot. Each day since my wedding day, I've been learning and growing and changing as a married man and as husband to Sarah, and some days I'm doing better, some days I'm doing worse. Hopefully, I'm generally getting better at it over time, but my bad days as a husband don't make me any less married. And my good days as a husband don't make me any more married. Positionally, I am married. Experientially, I'm learning how to flesh that out and become a better husband. And so too is our journey with Jesus. There is a definitive point in time when we trust in Jesus. When we do, our identity has changed. We check the box. We are positionally united with Christ. Our sins, past, present, and future are forgiven. 
We have a home in heaven that is secure because it is secured by the blood of Jesus Christ that does not change. We are saved, and then for the rest of our lives, we go on a journey with Jesus. We live as Christians learning how to follow and obey Jesus on our journey down the road with him. It's the road of discipleship. And that, friends, is the theme of today's text. That's what we're going to encounter in today's passage. And we're going to encounter the very first two requirements of this journey on our discipleship relationship with Jesus as we mature as Christians. And so what we've got this morning, we're going to examine two requirements for the road with Jesus. That's where we're headed. Here's the first one. What's the first requirement on our journey as disciples with Jesus? It's mercy. Mercy is required for the road with Jesus. We're going to pick up in our text starting in verse 51. It says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, He set his face to go to Jerusalem. So here begins his journey south. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. So real quick again, let me show you this again on the map. Here's the map. He's starting in Galilee. He's going to begin his 75-mile journey south. Uh, Just a couple of of, uh, contextual considerations as we're going to be following Jesus for the next uh, 10 chapters on this journey. Uh, The first one is this. Keep in mind, Jesus and his ministry in Galilee has gained quite a following. He's got a bit of an entourage. He has his 12 disciples. He's got the 72 broader disciples. He's got an even bigger base of like Facebook friends and Instagram followers, people who are generally tire kickers and interested in starting to follow this new budding movement around this person of Jesus. And because of this large entourage, and he's going to begin a road trip, It says in verse 52 that he sends uh, an advance party ahead of him to make necessary arrangements for where this growing group is going to stay. This is not Jesus and a couple buddies. This is Jesus and a large entourage. And you need to make some preparatory um, uh, communication and arrangements. This is common. We do the same thing today. I remember being in high school, traveling with a sports team, traveling with the band. We've got two big school buses, 100-plus people. We're going to travel through Grand Island. We're not just going to stop at Arby's and assume that they can feed all 120 of us. What do we do? We call ahead. Hey, we've got a couple touring buses. Can you accommodate? Can you feed us? Or if we're going to try to accommodate 120 people in hotels, what do we do? We call ahead say, hey, can you support us? Are you able to accommodate our size of group. Well, verse 52, that's exactly what's happening. It says, Jesus sends an advance party in to make arrangements in a Samaritan village. Uh, You can see that they need to travel through the region of Samaria. That's the most direct route anyway to get to uh, Judea. So Jesus decides to go that way. The only problem with traveling with uh, through Samaria is that it's filled with Samaritans. Why is that a problem? The Jews and the Samaritans fundamentally hated one another. They were long-standing enemies. Their mutual hatred went back actually centuries to when the Samaritans intermarried with the Assyrians, the very people that, that took over the Old Testament people of God, sent them into exile. The Samaritans, who were Jews, intermarried then with the Assyrians and then they melded not only their ethnic tribes, but also their, uh, their religion, their faith. So they're mixing, um, you know, Old Testament Judaism uh, along with, you know, so the Jewish faith with the pagan religion of the Assyrians. This is what we call syncretism. 
Let's just mix all the beliefs and all the ideas in one cocktail, shake it up, pour it over ice and drink it. Whatever comes out, let's mix it all together. Uh, they then had this um, um, mixed religion. They created their own temple uh, that rivaled the Jerusalem temple in Mount uh, Gerizim. And so the Jews and the Samaritans, they were not friends. Why? The Jews viewed the Samaritans as apostates. They sold out. They're not true to their faith and tradition. So too, the Samaritans viewed the Jews as, uh, as uh, religiously other. Uh, they were rival. They were competitors. They would actually oftentimes sneak into each other's temples and desecrate their temples. Just like uh, two rival football teams during homecoming week, we would often prank the opposing school. This is what the Jews and Samaritans did. They were not friends. In fact, to help you appreciate how the Jews felt about the Samaritans, I want you to just imagine, picture a whole group of ISIS terrorists who also are Iowa Hawkeye football fans, who also listen to Nickelback on repeat and smoke indoors at restaurants right next to newborn babies, okay? How do you feel about those people right now? That's how the Jews felt about the Samaritans. They're no fans at all. And so when the Jews traveled to Judea, they would often take a hard right. They would go east. They would uh, travel down through rougher, more mountainous country and then kick back into the west just to avoid the Samaritans altogether, but not Jesus. He's going to take his crew right through it. So let's see. Now he's now sent an advance party in. Go let them know. The school buses are coming. Can they feed us? Can they house us? Let's see how the dinner reservations go. We pick it up in verse 53. It says, but the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. So how did it go? Well, it went not well. That's how it went. Why? Because his face is set toward Jerusalem. Jesus is a Jew. He's traveling with an entourage of Jews, and they are going to Jerusalem, the capital city, and the place of the temple for the Jews. So the Samaritan response is, exact, is essentially, thanks, but no thanks. Uh, your type isn't wanted here. You're not welcome. You're not wanted. Please travel through. We don't want your business. Do not pass to uh, go. Do not collect $200. Just get out of here. We don't want you move along. Honestly, not a surprising response. This was a common response between the Jews and the Samaritans. The Jews would do the same thing, the Samaritans. We don't want to accommodate you. So there's nothing surprising here, but let's see how the disciples feel about the lack of hospitality. Verse 54. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? You got to love these guys, don't you? I don't appreciate their response, but I do appreciate their honesty. They're like, uh, hey, Jesus, can we do the fireball thing? You're God and uh, you can rain down fire. Let's rain down fire on these fools, right? Let's, let's let it go. Remember, Jesus had nicknamed James and John's son, the sons of thunder. And you can see they're really living up uh, to their name here. But if we're uh, honest, to give them some grace, we can relate to them. You ever wanted to send down fireballs on someone? I have. Am I the only one? Okay. Well, I'm sorry that I'm the only one. But uh, true story, a couple of years ago, my family and I went to the outlet malls at Gretna. And uh, I hate shopping, by the way. If you ever wonder, why does Gavin, wear, Gavin recycle the same three shirts every Sunday that he preaches, especially in the summer? I only have three, a blue one and a red and blue checked one. That's all I've ever worn for five years. Is he doing okay? Can he afford clothes? No, I can afford a new shirt. I just refuse to go to a clothing store. I absolutely hate to shop. 
But several years ago, my wife made me. We went to the Gretna Outlet Malls, and so I'm already in a bad mood. We go to the malls. It's back-to-school shopping season. It's a Saturday, a beautiful day. So everyone from Lincoln to Omaha is all at the Gretna Outlet Malls. Everyone from Gretna and Elkhorn and Waverly and Ashland and Greenwood and Wahoo, we've all commenced at the same, uh, or convened in the same place at the same time to go shopping, which means there's not a parking stall anywhere. So I'm already, you know, blood pressure's high because I'm shopping. Now there's no parking stall. I'm like, this is the worst. And then I see the woman with all the shopping bags walking to her car, and I do the creepy stalker thing where I just follow her. There is a stall coming. Be strategic. Wear her down. You're going to get this stall. So I follow her, really creepy, to her spot, and then I turn on my turn indicator, as a normal human being would do, to indicate to the entire watching universe, I'm here first. This is my parking stall. Indicator on, I'm waiting, family in the back of the minivan, the lady gets in, she starts her SUV, she puts her foot on the brake, I see the lights, she puts it in reverse, I see the white lights, and then nothing, nothing. For the better part of five minutes, I'm not exaggerating. I see her on her phone, she's replying to text messages, I literally see her take a selfie. She's in reverse. I think maybe she's doing some online shopping, checking her Tinder profile for a date later that night. I'm like, woman, what are you doing right now? So blood pressure is now, from a medical perspective, dangerously high. She eventually does proceed to come in reverse. She gets ready to go forward. Guess what comes in the other way? A high school kid driving his mom's SUV with the radio way too loud, probably listening to Nickelback, cuts right in and takes the parking stall. If there was a button on my dash that said fireballs from heaven, I would have smoked him. I might be in jail if my kids had not been in the back of my vehicle uh, for strangling a high school kid, but I gave him the death glare and I, you know, fireballs from heaven sounded really good. Now, I say that to say James and John here are actually dead serious. They're not being funny or dramatic for a sermon illustration. They actually want to murder these guys. And they're actually telling Jesus, can we please do that? Can we just wipe them out? And they're actually remembering a Bible story. It's from 2 Kings chapter 1, where King Ahaziah uh, is sending men to capture God's prophet Elijah. And Elijah says to the men who come to capture him, he says, if I'm a man of God, let fire from heaven come down and consume you. And guess what happens? Fire from heaven smokes them all. They're kindling. Off, poof, they go. King Ahaziah actually sends another group of men to capture him. Could you imagine getting that draft call? Hey, didn't go well for the first guys. You go. So they go to capture him. Guess what happens? He says the exact same thing. If I'm a man of God, let fire from heaven come and consume you. Smokes him twice. So James and John are actually, they're just trying to be biblical, right? Their Bible memory is good. The problem is their application is not. Fire from heaven wasn't a tool for God's people to call down on anyone who offends them. This was a unique moment in Old, Old Testament history where God protected his prophet from his captors. Now, James and John want to use this little fireball trick just to consume the people who have offended them. So Jesus shuts it down pretty quickly, verse 55. But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. It's interesting sometimes the things that we remember and the things that we forget, even when it comes to our Bible memory. James and John remember the fireball story, 
But somehow they've conveniently forgotten what Jesus taught them just three chapters earlier in Luke chapter 6, verse 27, on the Sermon on the Plain that Joe taught us, verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Three chapters earlier, they heard this teaching. So what we learn is no, no fireballs, James and John. Do you know why mercy is a requirement for the road with Jesus? It's because mercy is the means by which any one of us got on the road with Jesus in the first place. Do you know what James and John and you and me all deserve from God? Fireballs from heaven. That's what we deserve. We deserve God's wrath, God's judgment for our sins. No one is righteous, no, not one. But instead, what do we get? In the gospel, we receive God's grace. We deserve God's wrath, we got God's grace. We deserve God's judgment, we got God's mercy. Romans 5 and 10 says that while we were God's enemies, we weren't just like neutral parties that he saved. We were willfully against God in every way. While we were his enemies, Romans 5 says, he reconciled us to himself through his son. That's an incredible price he paid for our reconciliation. While we were enemies, Jesus died for us. His enemies in our sin, he gave us mercy. And now he says to go on a journey with him, if we're going to be disciples of this Jesus, it means to what? Show mercy to our enemies, our opponents, to those who offend us, to those who sin against us. So let me ask you, and myself, does mercy mark your life? How do you relate to your enemies? You say, I don't have enemies, I'm a Christian. Oh really, does your social media feed know that you don't have enemies? The algorithm knows, and they stoke the feud. I want you to think about the people in your life that get your blood boiling over their ridiculous opinions. They hate God, they hate us, they've rejected the truth, they're destroying our country. Sound familiar? Or think about the person who hosed you in a business deal or your former boss who was the absolute worst. Think about your estranged family member who rejected you and destroyed the fabric of your family that was so precious. Are you praying for their salvation or are you anticipating their judgment? Do you wish for and will their good or their harm? Just like Jesus cut through the tribal Samaritan village in this passage, guess what? He cuts right through our own social, political, and prideful religious tribes and those of the other side. He cuts through every single village, all of it. The question is, will we pray for his mercy and grace for all people and all tribes? Will we show and extend mercy like we have received mercy? This is how we walk the road of discipleship with Jesus. Not fireballs, mercy. And so the first requirement for the road with Jesus is that we walk with mercy. A disciple shows mercy like we have first received mercy. Here's the second requirement we see in this text on our road of discipleship. It's one of commitment. Commitment is required for the road with Jesus. 
In this next scene, we're actually going to see three unique individuals who want to join the road with Jesus, but each one of them comes with a reservation. Each one has an asterisk next to their desire to be a disciple with a condition to their commitment to following Jesus. And with each of these individuals, Jesus actually invites them to first count the cost. And he's going to call them on the front end a full commitment. Let's look at them one at a time, each one of them a different commitment. The first one is this, a commitment to hardships. Commitment is required for the road to Jesus, a commitment to enduring hardships. Look at verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. How many of you parents have ever had a kid who wanted a pet so bad, and they told you that no matter what, they're always going to do all the chores. You're never, ever even going to have to ask them one time to do it. They're going to do it. They're going to about a thousand. And after a year of having said pet, what happens? My daughter presently wants a rabbit. That's cute. Rabbits are nice. I like to hunt rabbits. She wants to own a rabbit, what is alive. So that's fine. They're soft. The problem is my wife, there's no way in a hundred million years that my wife would allow a rabbit to be inside. So my wife said, no, we're not going to have a, this is like a rodent. We're not going to have a rabbit inside. So my daughter said, that's okay. It'll be an outside rabbit. We'll get a cage, we'll get a rabbit hutch and I'll have an outside rabbit. And she's saying, this is going to be amazing. And so my job as a loving father is to what? help Vivi count the cost to let her know that taking care of an outdoor rabbit sounds really fun when it's a beautiful fall day, but there will be days when the high is negative three degrees. That is the warmest part of the day. That's Nebraska winters. There will be days when it is snowing. There will be days when it's raining. There will be days when she wants to have all of her girlfriends over and go to a birthday party, but she can do none of it until she gets her outdoor rabbit chores done. All right, I need to help her what? Count the cost, understand what she is committing to. And so while this man's words are compelling, I'll follow you wherever you go, Jesus. Jesus here is going to help him count the cost. Following Jesus isn't always going to look like traveling with an entourage of supporting people, watching him heal diseases and feed the masses. There's going to be some snowstorms. There's going to be some cold nights. There's going to be some rainy days. There's going to be some difficult moments. Verse 58, and Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus isn't saying, no, don't follow me. It's a bad idea. When you first read this passage, you're like, Jesus is a horrible evangelist, by the way. You know, you wouldn't have that thought. You're like, bro, go easy on him, you know? But what's he doing here? He's like a loving father. He's letting him know at the front end that following him isn't going to be all butterflies and rainbows. The walk of discipleship is a costly one. What's he saying? He's saying foxes have dens. They got a place to lay their head at night. Birds have a nest. They got a place to call home. Jesus, not so much. Jesus is out of place in this world. And his followers will, at least should be, too. And City Light, I want to affirm just the same heads up to our church family. This is a loving thing for us to look at and consider. Jesus warns us it will cost you something. And I want you to recognize, despite what you've maybe heard from a televangelist or other places, that Jesus is not promising you riches, health, popularity, and power on this side. Find things. But if that is your greatest goal, if that's the thing you're after, Jesus may not be what you're looking for. But 
If you want something greater than all of that, more potent than worldly power, more pleasing than popularity, more attractive than beauty itself, then Jesus is what you're looking for. If you're a follower of Jesus, though, you need to know you will sense that the world is not your home. You will experience dissonance, discomfort, unease, rejection. To commit to following after Jesus as a disciple means to embrace the discomfort of loving difficult people. To embrace the discomfort of giving until it hurts. To embrace the discomfort of putting Jesus and his church ahead of your own ambitions and desires and comforts. To embrace the discomfort of a life out of step with modern culture. The discomfort of being disliked, misunderstood, and even opposed. That's what we're signing up for. There will be hardships. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. But the reward of following Jesus far outvalues anything we lose by following him. I want to ask you, are you willing to count the cost? Are you willing to be out of step in this world, to be a foreigner and a sojourner, to chase the prize of knowing Jesus and walking with him? Will you follow him? Here's the second commitment that's required. There's a commitment to a sense of urgency in following Jesus. There's an urgency required. Verse 59, to another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Okay, that's a hard Bible verse, right? Like, that's not on a lot of bumper stickers. It feels like Bo Pelini Jesus showed up again this week. We saw him two weeks ago. Here he is again, you know? That sounds very sacrilegious. Jesus the jerk, you know? But you read it, you're like, come on, man, that's harsh. What's going on here? Well, a little cultural context helps to give a little light on the situation. Here's what I mean. If we read verse 59 through our own cultural lens, it appears at least that this man's father has passed away. And it appears that the funeral is coming up. And that this man just wants to give his dad a proper burial and be present for the funeral before he goes on the road with Jesus. If that's the case, then it seems rather unnecessarily harsh for Jesus to respond in this way. But let's consider the first century Hebrew cultural context of what's going on here. First... If this man's father had died, and if this man was with him, near him, or had touched him, according to Numbers chapter 19, verse 11, he would then be ceremonially unclean for seven days. That means that this man would not be even allowed out in public to encounter Jesus along the public road in the first place. Number two, Hebrew custom was that a dead body had to be buried within 24 hours of death. So again, if this man's father had just passed, it was additionally unlikely that he would be out on the street to encounter Jesus on the road. Why? Because he would be be preparing for the imminent burial of his dead father. Number three, Jesus responds with the saying, let the dead bury their own dead. Well, the physical dead cannot bury physical dead. It seems that Jesus is speaking allegorically here, that he's not maybe talking about the physical dead at all, but the spiritual dead. And so upon further cultural review, it seems unlikely at all that this man's father is physically dead. 
What it seems that this man is doing is postponing, devoting himself to following Jesus until a later life stage. To a life stage after his dad has passed away, after he has laid him to rest, he wants to stay where he is, wait for his father to die, bury his father, collect his inheritance, and then commit to following Jesus. Jesus' response makes it clear that we don't get to delay discipleship until it's convenient for us. Convenient for our schedules, for our life plans, for our financial priorities, or our aspirations. But how many of us have done this? After having fun in high school, then I'll follow Jesus. When I get through college, then I'll get serious about my faith. Once I find a spouse, we'll settle down and find a good church and commit to following Jesus. After I get my career built up, I got to hustle in the first five years. Once I get partner, once I pay off my student loans, once I store up a little nest egg, then I'll get more serious about being devoted as a Christian. Once we have kids, then we'll find a local church and we'll settle down because we got kids in Sunday school. But we'll open up the Bible. We'll explore our faith. When my father dies, says the man, Jesus shakes his head. He calls us to a sense of urgency. What Jesus is making clear is that the time to follow him as a disciple is now. Not then, not someday, not if things work out, it's now. There's a sense of urgency required on the road with Jesus. Here's the the third and final commitment that we see. The commitment is required for the road with Jesus is a commitment to focus. There's a commitment to focus. Verse 61 to the end says, Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So in my observation or opinion, this guy's precondition to following Jesus actually seems the most reasonable. He's not kicking the can down the road to some future life stage He doesn't appear to be naive about the cost involved of being a disciple. He's just like, can I go say goodbye to my family and my friends? Like, I'm about to hit the road with you. I will head south, but let me just make amens and say goodbye. And Jesus actually replies with an agricultural analogy about plowing. In that context, to plow a field, the farmer would have an oxen that was pulling a plow, and he would lead all of it from behind. And so he would lead the plow with one hand, he would goad the oxen with the other hand, and if he wanted to plow a straight line, he would need to lock his gaze at a point on the horizon and goad the oxen and steer the plow to that point across the field. Um, We do the same thing when we mow. I don't know about you, but sometimes I like to cross-cut my lawn at a 45 degree angle. It's beautiful. It's pretty easy to just line up along the sidewalk right, and mow a straight line, but there's something intimidating about starting in the middle of the grass relative left to right and saying, I'm going to mow a perfect 45-degree angle across this. Well, I feel like a seasoned lawn man now, but in my early days, my younger days as a homeowner, I didn't know the tricks, and so I would just mow what I thought was a straight line, and then I'd look back and go, did a three-year-old just mow this lawn? It was so squiggly. 
And uh, sometimes I would mow and I would look back to see if it was going straight. And I would tend to mow the way that I was looking. And now it looks even worse. But I learned a trick now that I'm a seasoned lawn, lawn man. I made that word up, by the way. Seasoned lawn man. What you do, you just pick a crack in the sidewalk. And you just don't leave your eyes off of it. You don't even have to think about where you're going. You look at the crack and you mow. And you look back. Perfect. So good. And then you follow that line back and forth and back and forth. That's how you plow a straight line. Well, it's the same thing with plowing a field. The farmers would have to keep their eyes looking forward, not back if they wanted to plow a straight line. So Jesus is simply saying, look, at some point in your life to follow me, you're just going to have to stop. Stop looking back. Stop with the asterisks and the conditions and the some days and let me just do this one thing and you're going to have to actually pick up your cross. You're going to have to actually put your hand to the plow, not look back and follow Jesus. I want to ask, does that resonate with anyone in the room today? Have you been hedging your bets, adding conditions and timelines and telling Jesus someday if this, when that happens... And if that's you, would you just hear the gracious call of Jesus this morning in Luke 9 saying, today is the day. Today is the day. Yes, he's honest, there will be hardships. Yes, there's a sense of urgency. Yes, you will need to focus. Yes, you will need to show mercy to those you want to rain down fire on. But the call of Jesus is to lay all that down. The excuses, the some days, the maybe ifs, ifs the if thens, then I will, but to lay it all down. Eye on Jesus. Say, no turning back. I'm going to follow you. To surrender every area of your life to him. Your heart, your future, your money, your ambitions, your reputation, your family, your body, your goals, your control, your religion, your preferences, your ideologies, your vision for the good life. Lay it all down and say, above all else, I'm a follower of Jesus and follow him down the road of discipleship. It's what he's calling you to today in this text. Are you ready to follow Jesus, to hold nothing back? City Light, can I just affirm one more time that the reward is eternally more valuable than any cost. To know Jesus, to walk with Jesus, to serve Jesus is eternally better than anything this world offers you. It's all fool's gold, friends. Everything of this world will let you down but Jesus never will. On the last day of your life, your last breath, you will never look back and say, I wish I just had 20% 20 more of what I already had. I wish I had, no. You'll say, Jesus, you're my only hope, my only treasure. Let me end by asking you, where do we get this kind of faith, this kind of radical discipleship faith that says, I'm going to forsake everything and run after you, Jesus, alone? Where do we get this, this courage? I think if you're a Christian, if I'm a Christian, we want this. But we look at the fruit of our lives and we recognize there's a big gap of where we're at currently. How do we get there? How do we grow in discipleship? How do we lay it all down? I'm convinced it is by looking to Jesus. That's not a spiritual cliche. That is practical. It's by looking to Jesus, the one who first laid down everything he had for you, for us, to save us, to pursue us. Philippians 2 said that he even laid down his divine rights as God. He forsook it. He laid it down. He counted the cost, and he moved forward to the cross. Jesus came to this earth, leaving the comforts of heaven. Why? To rescue you, to save you. He endured hardships. 
He carried a sense of urgency. He kept his focus set on the prize before him, the prize of showing you and me mercy where we deserved judgment, grace where we deserved wrath. Jesus gave us his all so that we could know him and enjoy life with him and to follow him each day of this life. So City Light Church, may he give us grace to put our hands to the plow, to follow him, no looking back. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you love us enough to invite us to count the cost, to let us know on the front end that living in this world as a follower of Jesus isn't always going to be celebrated, easy, or comfortable. And we want to come to you this morning humbly and just corporately confess that every requirement you have for discipleship, if we're honest, we will say we've already broken. (laughs) Jesus, we have been quick to judge others where you have shown us mercy. We have avoided hardships, delayed obedience, often lost focus of following after you, and yet the gospel. Jesus, where we have failed, you have succeeded. Where we have fallen short, you have hit the mark, and you did it in our place. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for unending fresh starts and a new day to walk with you. And for our little church family here, oh Jesus, would you call each one of us out of being spectators, observers, or even fans? Would you make us followers? Would you give us your grace and your power to lay it all down and follow after you, the one who first laid it all down to save us? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.